Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 10. We're skipping ahead to Chapter 23, Simple Reproduction, and Chapter 24, The Transformation of Surplus Value into Capital. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. You probably will have uh, noticed by this week's reading, but it's been going on since the beginning of uh, uh, Part 5, Chapter 16, which is that there's a, a shift of emphasis and perspective uh, going on uh, in the text. Uh, up until this point, uh, by and large, Marx has been dealing with uh, the individual uh, and dealing with very specific aspects of uh, the extraction of surplus value. And this big distinction between absolute and relative surplus value and the concentration on the dynamics of technological change uh, brings us to the point where in chapter 16 on absolute and relative surplus value, Marx kind of says at a certain point, well, really, there's only one surplus value. So what's the point of uh, distinguishing between absolute and relative? Well, there are two reasons uh, that he advances. Uh, the first reason is that uh, really there are two strategies that the capitalists can do to engage with in searching for, for surplus value, the absolute and the relative. So it's, it, the distinction defines two distinctive strategic possibilities in the approach of capital. Uh, but Marx also inserts in chapter 16 the, the fact that this is not only strategic uh, possibilities for capital, but it's also the positionality of labor. Uh, and he introduces this distinction between uh, formal and real subsumption of labor under capital. Uh, the formal is that which can be established through the market, and, uh, but it leaves, in effect, uh, the laborer in command of their own means of production and their own skills. By the time, of course, you get to machinery, all of that is taken away from the laborer, and you get the uh, real subsumption of labor under capital, where uh, the laborer becomes an appendage, in effect, uh, upon uh, capital and an appendage upon the labor process. So it's a shift in the positionality of labor. And in a sense, it, it does convey uh, the point that there's a certain disempowerment going on, uh, that uh, during the 
uh, earlier periods when workers were in control of their own instruments, they had a certain power which re resided in that, but now that power is taken away and they're effectively uh, disempowered at the point of production because most of the skill is now embodied in the machine and, and they become machine minders, appendages, and, and the rhythms of work are driven by the machine and whoever controls the machine rather than by uh, the worker. So that's one shift that, that happens around here. Another shift that happens is he does this uh, dual move in the opening of chapter uh, 16, which we did talk about uh, very briefly last time, in which he kind of says, well, you know, we no longer should be looking at uh, the individual laborer, we need to be looking at the collective laborer. Now, the collective laborer is uh, a very uh, you know, controversial kind of question, and Marx doesn't really elaborate upon it, but uh, if, when you ask the question, where does the collective labor begin and end? Uh, well, it's not easy to see. If you have a, a factory, then you can say, okay, it's the factory gate, but what happens when uh, you have a production system where there's a lot of uh, subcontracting going on, and what do you do about certain functions which can be inside of the factory or outside of the factory. But Marx doesn't elaborate upon that. He just says, look, I want to get to collect the collectivity. And as you will see in the subsequent chapters, he's moving towards the transition from, if you like, micro-relations to the macro-relations of relations between classes. So you move from the perspective of individual laborer and the exploitation to the class perspective of what's the relationship between the capitalist class and the working class. Now that transition in economic thinking is actually a very complicated one and a very difficult one. Uh, as conventional economics has a terrible time uh, trying to fuse microeconomics with macroeconomics. It doesn't know how to do it. I mean, it tries to do it and every time it does it, somebody comes along and unpicks it. Marx is in effect faced with the same problem here. And there are two ways you can look at it. One is to say that Marx is basically saying this is not that much of an important problem. We're just going to deal with the collective labor and get on with it. Um, or you can kind of say, well, actually, there is a bit of a problem here and we should spend some more time elaborating upon it. Uh, the second point where he uh, introduces something which is uh, controversial and, and somewhat problematic is his definition of productivity. And I should hasten to point out, this is not his definition of productivity. He's trying to define for us what the definition of productivity is within a capitalist mode of production. So it's capital's definition of productivity that he's looking at. And he says, well, the only labor that's productive uh, is the labor which actually produces surplus value for the capitalist. Now, again, uh, producing surplus labor, sur surplus value for the capitalist uh, you know, again, where does that begin? Where does that end? And he's introducing here a bit of a thorny problem of the relationship between productive and unproductive labor. This is something that has occupied Adam Smith. And so when you go to uh, theories of surplus value, the sort of three volumes that Marx attached to capital in terms of history of economic thought, uh, the first volume is very much about Adam Smith, and, and most of the volume is dealing with, the, okay, what's productive labor and what's unproductive labor. Uh, Adam Smith was very concerned 
that an economy should, of course, have a definition of productive labor and should try to put labor into productive activity. Uh, and in sort of 18th century, there was a lot of laborers who were in unproductive activities. And if Adam Smith had any political program, it was, it was get them out of being retainers on the estate and sort of uh, uh, cooks in aristocratic households and get them into productive activities. And then there's an also an interesting question uh, of what about those branches of capitalist activity which are not directly engaged in physical production? Uh, so do we regard the banking sector as essentially unproductive labor or do we regard it as productive labor? Do we think of the bankers as parasites or do we think them as being foundational uh, for, for the whole system? I think Marx clearly thinks they're foundational but doesn't preclude the idea that there's a lot of parasitic activity going on uh, in there. So when he differentiates between uh, banking functions which help to sort of smooth the passage of labor and credit structures which uh, actually uh, assure the continuity of the capitalist system, then you could argue that the banking system is productive, it's promoting efficiency, uh, continuity, uh, speeding up things and, and, and all the rest of it, but on the other hand, when it becomes speculative, it's becoming unproductive. So you might well then approach the question of finance by saying some of it is productive and some of it's unproductive. But Marx has introduced this here. But how much does he say about this definition of productive and unproductive labor? He says almost nothing. Um, I suspect that after copying out all of the stuff that Adam Smith wrote about it and theories of surplus value and all the rest of it, he got bored with the topic and decided that it was, you know, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So he just slided in and sort of say, okay, well, productive labor is that labor which produces surplus value, um, and then sort of get on with the with the the, the, the discussion. Um, so uh, these definitions are introduced. Uh, he's also got uh, something which he's adding into the question of productivity because uh, there was a lot of literature arguing that, of course, productivity, particularly in agriculture, depends upon natural circumstances, uh, depends on the fertility of the soil. Uh, so he has to introduce the, this distinction of uh, fertile versus unfertile, the relation to nature, and as I point out in this diagram of the general circulation of capital, the metabolic relation to nature is one of the theses that comes into capital periodically. And this is one moment where he takes up uh, this kind of uh, uh, question, uh, to ask the, the question, in what sense does surplus value rest on a natural basis? And his answer, answer is that natural wealth does indeed an external natural conditions do indeed affect the productivity of labor. Um, but there's one thing to say that they affect the productivity of labor and another thing to say that uh, actually surplus value uh, is, a, is, is uh, can be credited to nature uh, rather than to human action. But so he tries to bring it back. There's a bit of dubious uh, reasoning goes on here. Uh, there's a bit of a, the 19th century was a time when environmental determinism was a very popular uh, kind of positionality. So on 649, when he talks about uh, the domination of man over nature, 
Um, but then he goes on to say, where nature is too prodigal with her gifts, she keeps him in hand like a child in leading strings, which leads into the kind of whole thing that people are not very productive in the tropic, tropics because they have, it, have life too easy. Uh, and you kind of get an, an Arnold Toynbee kind of uh, view, which is challenge and response, that civilization arises only in those areas which pose certain challenges to humanity and where, you know, you can sit under a banyan tree and just you know, eat mangoes or whatever, you know, you, you, you're not going to, you know, it's kind of environmental determinism. There's a hint of that in here, which I think we could do without. But there is, uh, however, uh, a... a he does sort of bring it back to the social and the historical uh, fairly quickly. Uh, uh, and and uh, on 651, he has a little phrase about nature's direct gift to him is plenty of leisure time. Before he can apply this leisure time productively for himself, a whole series of historical circumstances required. Before he spends it in surplus labor for others, compulsion is necessary. So he then gets back to the historical and social origins of surplus value uh, after sort of a little bit of a deviation, in my view, into the kind of the, the possibility of, 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 of the being natural basis. The subsequent chapters are kind of uh, typical marks that he's got these different uh, 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 changes of magnitude in the price of labor power and in surplus value. He's got these three variables, so what does he do? He has a little essay on the length of the working day and the intensity of labor constant, the productivity of labor variable. Then you go on a few pages and you read the length of the working day and the productivity of labor constant, the intensity of labor variable. Then you go on third, the productivity and intensity of labor constant, the length of the working day variable. And finally, you get simultaneous variations in the duration, productivity, and intensity of labor. Well, you get it right. So you know what he's doing. He's just sort of saying, okay, the three, these, these different variables, they can be permeated in uh, different ways with each other uh, in and around uh, the labor process and the production of surplus value. And, and he then starts to toy with different formulae for the rate of surplus value. And again, this is uh, uh, the usual uh, sort, sort of, uh, sort of uh, arguments. Part six on wages. I suggested we, we skip that, but I just want to make a couple of remarks about it. Uh, Marx has set up uh, the, the concept of the, the value of labor power, which is the value of the... Uh, of the socially necessary labor time and the commodities needed to reproduce the laborer at a certain standard of living. So he's got the concept of the value of labor power. He's also set up earlier this whole kind of notion that value has to have its representation and its representation is in a monetary form of price. So here he's kind of saying, okay, I've done the value of labor power, now I have to say, what's the price form of that? And He's, this allows him uh, to critique one of the big, big problems of classical political economy. And the big problem was that the classical political economy kept on going on and on and on about the value of labor and wanted to know how the value of labor was established. And of course, Marx is saying there's no such thing as the value of labor. Uh, labor is value. So to ask the question, what is the value of labor, is like asking, what is the value of value? It doesn't make any sense. Because what Marx is distinguishing is that there's a big difference between labor 
and labor, uh, labor time as a, pro as a commodity. And therefore, uh, the commodity form of, of labor time is what is, is being bought and sold, not labor. You don't, the laborer is not selling himself or herself. He, he's, he's selling, you know, she's selling the labor time. Um, and Marx kind of says about this, what the worker is selling is his labor power. As soon as his labor actually begins, it has already ceased to belong to him. It can therefore no longer be sold by him. Labor is the substance and the imminent measure of value, but it has no value itself. The expression of value labor, concept of value, is not only completely extinguished, but inverted. And he then goes on to say, what, what's the problem with this? Now, when they ask this big question about, well, okay, how do we establish what the value of, of labor is, as opposed to the value of labor time, the, the classical political economists couldn't find an answer, except in terms of demand and supply. So they basically said the, the value of labor is set by demand and supply for labor. But Marx has a little answer to that, which is important on 678. And I, I think this applies throughout capital in general, because and it's one thing that's very important to do. Uh, it soon, he says that the, the classical political economy had to recognize that changes in the relation between demand and supply explained nothing with regard to the price of labor or any, any other commodity except those changes themselves, i.e. the oscillations of the market price above or below a certain mean. If, and this is a crucial passage, if demand and supply balance, the oscillation of prices ceases, all other circumstances remaining the same, but then demand and supply also cease to explain anything. The price of labor at the moment when demand and supply are in equilibrium is its natural price, determined independently of the relation of demand and supply. Throughout capital, Marx doesn't attribute any power to demand and supply. Demand and supply explains oscillations in prices and deviations away from value. But it doesn't explain why the value of this commodity is twice as much as that. In other words, if shirts cost, shirt, if, if, if uh, shoes cost twice as much as shirts, the reason why they do so is not because there's twice as much demand for shoes as there is for shirts. It comes out because the labor input is different in the production of, I mean, this is his argument. So it's the labor input which is, which is critical in, in, in defining the difference. So throughout capital, demand and supply is generally eliminated. And here he's saying it very explicitly. The demand and supply also cease to explain something uh, when demand and supply are in balance and the oscillation of prices ceases. Now, having then sort of got to the point of uh, uh, the the way in which the price of labor then becomes represented again by wages, Marx then has some remarks on wages. So you've got the value of labor power, you've got the relationship between value and price, which then produces the wage, which is, of course, how much money is paid to the laborer and how it is paid. 
Now, at this point again, Marx goes into practices and says, all right, chapter 20, time wages, which is when you're paid by the hour, not by the day, so you have to get out of that thinking uh, that Marx has used beforehand, that there's a working day of uh, 14 hours and, and uh, six hours go to the reproduction of labor. No, you're now looking at hourly basis, but you're still looking at the same ratio. In other words, there's a certain ratio between uh, the, the, the uh, wage rate uh, and, and the surplus uh, value. So time wages. Then peace wages. Well, you know, again, this is a different form that the wage system can take and does take. And so Marx talks about it and shows how uh, this is often used as a means of disciplining the labor force. Uh, by putting workers in competition with each other over piecework. And as you probably know, uh, there's a long history of uh, workers revolting against that by deliberately slowing down on piecework situations to make sure that uh, uh, it doesn't get uh, too, too rough. There's a little interesting chapter 22 on national differences in wages. Uh, and... Um, in, in effect, Marx is recognizing that the value of labor power, as it's translated into the wage form, is going to look different in different parts of the world, depending upon the standard of living, depending upon the state of class struggle, depending upon natural circumstances. In other words, all those things that affected the value of labor power can vary from one country to another. So you will find different uh, values of labor power in different countries, which gets then turned into different wage rates uh, in, different, uh, in different countries. And then Marx introduces very uh, slightly the whole kind of question of, well, what happens when trade occurs between these two countries where you've got different values of labor power? What happens? Uh, is there unequal exchange going on? Is there some extraction of value from one country to another? And the answer when you work it through is yes, there is, but Marx is not being very uh, very advanced on, on that argument. Okay, so that now brings us to chapter, to part seven. Um, The opening two pages of this uh, on 709-710. Uh, this is a very important passage. Marx here actually tells us what his assumptions are. And you've got to internalize very much the nature of those assumptions and, and, and what they do for his analysis and what they don't do. Uh, so he wants now to look at the whole kind of process, which is why I've put this diagram up on the board once more, the whole process of capital circulation and accumulation. That's what he wants to look at. And he says, okay, it's going to be cyclical. It's going to be going round and round and over time. Uh, but then he introduces some assumptions for this part of the analysis. He says, the first condition of accumulation is that the capitalist must have contrived to sell his commodities and to reconvert into capital the greater part of the money received from their sale. 
In the following pages, we, sh we shall assume the capital passes through its process of circulation in the normal way. The detailed analysis of the process will be found in Volume 2. So he's telling you there's a whole bunch of stuff going to be dealt with in Volume 2, which is not going to be dealt with in Volume 1. And the Volume 1 analysis is going to proceed as if the whole circulation process goes on in a normal way. Put in this diagram, when you follow up, you, get, you start at the bottom and you've got money. We've seen how money is used to buy constant capital and variable capital, or means of production and labor power. How those commodities are taken into the production process and turned into production. How production of the new commodity is then taken into the market and, and realized in the market and what's realized there is also the profit or the surplus value. And then the circulation process continues as it's distributed in various forms and keeps going round and round. But Marx is saying, I assume that there's absolutely no barrier to that point of realization at that point of realization of value. I assume that once capital has produced value and surplus value, it is going to be realized. There is no problem of realization in volume one. That is going to be dealt with in Volume 2 and Volume 3. So in a sense, what he's doing is saying, I'm just going to look at this process that takes us from money up to the point of realization, and then I'm going to assume all the rest of the process is, go is going to be normalized. Okay. Then Marx says this, the capitalist who produces surplus value, who extracts unpaid labor directly from the workers and fixes it in commodities, is admittedly the first appropriator of this surplus value. But he is by no means its ultimate proprietor. He has to share it afterwards with capitalists who fill, fill other functions in social production taken as a whole, with the owner of land and with yet other people. Surplus value is therefore split up into various parts. Its fragments fall to various categories of person and take on various mutually independent forms such as profit, Interest, going to the bankers and financiers. Gains made through trade, going to the merchant capitalists. Ground rent, going to the landlords. And he should have put in here taxes, uh, which go to the state. We shall be able to deal with these modified forms of surplus value only in volume three. So volume two is going to deal with some aspects of the system. Volume three is going to deal with, with, with this. On the one hand, he then says, next page, then we assume here the capitalist sells the commodity, commodities he has produced at their value. And we shall not concern ourselves with a later return to the market or the new forms that capital assumes while in the sphere of circulation. On the other hand, we treat the capitalist producer as the owner of the entire surplus value, or perhaps better, as a representative of all those who share the booty with him. We shall therefore begin by considering accumulation from an abstract point of view i.e. simply as one aspect of the immediate process of production. Insofar as accumulation actually takes place, the capitalist must have succeeded in selling his commodities and in reconverting the money shaken loose from them into capital. Moreover, the breakup of surplus value into various fragments does not affect either its nature or the conditions under which it becomes an element of accumulation. Whether the proportion of surplus value which the capitalist producer retains for himself or yields up to others, he is the one who in the first instance appropriates it. Uh, okay, this 
is Marx stating what he's going to do in the three volumes of Capital. The first volume is from money up to the point of realization, and we're going to look at everything that goes on. Then volume two is going to look at the circulation process as a whole, how it moves around, and in particular, the problems of realization of value in the market. What happens if there's no market, for example? And volume three is going to do, deal with the effects of the breaking up of the surplus value into interest, merchant profit on merchant capital, uh, rent, taxes, and, 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 and the like. Uh, what that says is that the totality of what Marx is interested in doing is going to be contained in the three volumes of the analysis. We are going to look at one aspect of the totality in what follows, and it's that aspect of the totality which is dealing with the left-hand side, if you like, of this circulation process. And Marx is going to assume that everything else is going to go on and the whole thing is going to keep sort of whirring around in, in, a, nice, in a nice kind of form. So, chapter 23. When viewed as a connected whole, and in the constant flux of its incessant renewal, every social process of production is at the same time a process of reproduction. That is, instead of looking at just one linear argument, what we're now doing is embedding it in this circulation process, which is portrayed uh, up here. Uh, and We look then at certain aspects of this. Now, when I said that Marx is not going to deal with everything uh, around, there are, of course, as usual, certain exceptions. One of the first things is to start to look at the positionality of the worker. Uh, and what happens is the worker is... The, the labor power of the worker is purchased, taken in production, produces the commodity. The worker is then paid a wage. So you see the line at the top that says, okay, some of the value and surplus value is distributed to the worker in the form of the wage. The wage then flows back into production. And it flows back, but it flows back by passing through the purchase of commodities. Wages allow the, the worker to produce some of the commodities which the worker has produced. Those commodities can then be taken into social reproduction, you get social reproduction, and then the laborer is revived and fed and can come back into the production process. So there's a circulation process in this diagram uh, that goes from, uh, if you like, the whole kind of production process and the paying of wages round through the purchase of, uh, of, of wage goods social reproduction back. So there's a, a circulation process. And that's the circulation of variable capital, if you want to call it that. And what Marx does is, is in effect, to say, well, what kind of class relation does this presuppose? And in effect, I, I, I think the best imagery for this is, which is, comes out on page 713, is that, well, starting at bottom of 7.12, what flows back to the worker in the shape of wages is a portion of the product he himself continuously reproduces. 
The capitalist, it is true, pays him the value of the commodity and money, but this money is merely the transmuted form of the product of his labor. The illusion created by the money form vanishes immediately. If, instead of taking a single capitalist and a single worker, we take the whole capitalist class and the whole working class. The capitalist class is constantly giving to the working class drafts in the form of money on a portion of the product produced by the latter and appropriated by the former. The workers give these drafts back just as constantly to the capitalists and thereby withdraw from the latter their allotted share of their own product. This is the circulation of variable capital. And the best way to think of this is this is a company store relation. The class relation is a company store relation. You know, you, you, you work for the company, uh, you get the money from the, the company, and then you take it into the company store, and you buy the commodities that allow you to live, and then you go back and work for the company again. And so, in effect, in effect, Marx is kind of saying the class relations between capital and labor, when you look at it in this way, is in effect a company store relation. Now, but he then does, I think, a, a very interesting little game. Uh, the money capital at the beginning of this whole sequence, where, where does it come from? Well, Marx kind of says it can basically come from, from anywhere, but somebody's going to start. But let's suppose they start, and they start with uh, uh, £1,000. And what then happens is that it is taken into production and it produces a surplus value of 200 and then that is distributed and used in certain ways and then it goes round again and comes back and, and you go round. And Marx makes a very interesting argument here. He says, even though the capitalist owned the £1,000 at the beginning and can claim that is the capitalist property, they have no claim after five years because after five years, 200 pounds a year has been produced in the form of surplus value, which truly belongs to the worker, but has been appropriated by capital. Now, the way capital appro approaches this is that they have a right to the perpetuation of their 1,000 pounds over the whole five-year span. And Marx is saying, well, actually, if you're looking at who's making the value, and if you take the lock principle, right, and the lock principle is that every laborer has the right to what the value is that comes from mixing their labor with the land, if you take the Lockean principle, then the laborer should have a right to the 200 pounds of surplus because they've produced it. And capitalist private property should disappear. After, after five years. Because basically, the capitalist has consumed away the surplus value. If they've took all the surplus value and consumed it, then they've consumed away their original 1,000. And they, have no, they don't maintain any right to it. This is a very interesting idea. Uh, and it was once put into process, into practice, in, or attempted to be put into practice in, in Sweden in the late 1960s, early 1970s, with something called the Meidner Plan. The Meidner Plan was very interesting. It kind of said basically this, all right, there's inflation and there's real difficulty of, you know, in labor relations. 
So we're going to say to the working class, okay, do not ask for an increase in wages. And the working class would restrain its consumption. But what we will then do is to take what you would have had if you had the wage rise and convert it into a social investment fund. And that social investment fund will be a non-tradable non portion of the, uh, the enterprise within which you're working. And after 10 years, that social investment fund would in fact uh, own the whole company. So this is a way of socializing, and it was, in a sense, it's a bit like this schema. It, it, it's saying the company is sitting there, kind of saying it's, it owes its capital, but actually its capital is being augmented and reproduced by labor all of the time, and, that, uh, and, and labor has a right to that augmentation. And if it has a right to that augmentation, then eventually the company ownership should give way to ownership by the social investment fund, which would be controlled by the workers. Actually, the Labour Party in Britain has come up with something about right now, which is a little bit, close, not exactly the Meidner plan, because as you can imagine, this plan didn't go down too well with the capitalist class, and there was a kind of a huge uh, ruckus, and uh, it was never uh, implemented. But it's an interesting, uh, I think, uh, uh, sort sort of sort of way of way of, of thinking of who has right to what, uh, and uh, this idea that uh, property has a right to be perpetuated forever, uh, without any discussion of who it is is producing the surplus value. Uh, by the way, uh, we all have that problem. If any of you got a savings account and getting interest, if you're getting interest of five percent, the interesting question: Where's the five percent coming from? It's coming from somebody producing surplus value somewhere. And if they have a right to it, then you don't have a right in perpetuity to your 5% rate of return on your savings. Sorry. <laughs> it, 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 what Marx is doing here is, is challenging certain basic precepts of capitalist, capitalist property rights. And, 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 and trying to tie it back, actually, and that's why it's, it's so clever, is tying it back to the Lockean principle, which is supposed to be the liberal principle that founds, you know, what, what a capitalist economy is about. So Marx is really playing, having a good time playing with that. Uh, but what happens, of course, in practice is, that the, as, as he says on 7.16, the worker always leaves the process in the same state as he entered it. Uh, a personal source of wealth, but deprived of any means of making that wealth a reality for himself. In other words, his wealth, the, the, the wealth they produce is not theirs. Since before he enters the process, his own labor has already been alienated from him. And this is one of the points where the theory of alienation comes back into the picture appropriated by the capitalist and incorporated with capital. It now, in the course of the process, constantly objectifies itself so that it becomes a product alien to him. So it's not only the process that's alien to him, it's also the product is alien to him. Since the process of production is also the process of the consumption of labor power by the capitalist, the worker's product is not only constantly converted into commodities, but also into capital, into value that sucks up the worker's value-creating power, means of subsistence, that actually 
purchase human beings, a means of production that employ the people who are doing the producing. Therefore, the worker himself constantly produces objective wealth in the form of capital, an alien power that dominates and exploits him. One of the things messages Marx is trying to send to the workers about this is that you, you're producing an instrument of your own domination. If you don't like being dominated, you, you, you've got to deal with that instrument, which is the, is, is, is the source of your domination. And so the worker then constantly produces objective wealth in the form of capital and alien power that dominates and exploits him. And the capital just as constantly produces labor power in the form of a subjective source of wealth, which is abstract, exists merely in the physical body of the worker and is separated from its own means of objectification and realization. Workers cannot objectify and realize the value and the power of their own body. In short, the capitalist produces the worker as a wage laborer. This is kind of a very interesting way of looking at it. Capital system, the worker, produces an instrument of their own domination at the same time as capital actually uses that instrument of domination dominate the worker and produce the worker as wage labor. This incessant reproduction, this perpetuation of the worker is absolutely necessary condition for capitalist production. That's what's going on in this circulation process. This is what Marx is talking about. Then he says, well, but the worker's consumption is of two kinds. Again, this is going to be an important distinction. The two kinds are productive consumption and individual consumption. Individual consumption is when the worker consumes wage goods, food and the rest of it, to reproduce themselves. Productive consumption is when the worker takes constant capital and uses it in such a way and consumes it in the, cre in the creation of a new commodity which is going to be sold in the market. Now, when we talk about consumption, we're nearly always thinking about personal consumption. Productive consumption is a terribly important category in Marx. Because productive consumption also plays a very important role in realization problems. Just to give you an example, in 2007, 2008, there's a crisis, you know. China is in difficulty, it's losing, it, 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 its consumer market in the United States collapses, its export industries start closing down. What are they going to do? Where can they find another form of consumption? Their own population isn't in a position to do it, so what do they do? They start building railroads and they start building fixed capital and they start investing that actually creates a huge amount of consumption. So actually, but it was productive consumption. At least you hope it was going to be productive because it was long-term you know, investment in long-term assets. And that productive consumption generated a huge demand for commodities, such as copper and steel and iron, or, you know, iron ore and all the rest of it. And, and as a result of that, you know, countries that were supplying commodities like Australia and, 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 and Chile and all the rest of it you know, did pretty well because the commodity prices went up. 
So in effect, what the Chinese did in the face of a collapse of final consumption and in individual consumption in the United States is they moved to productive consumption. And this distinction Marx has, and as you can see from that example, this is not a trivial thing, and it's not a small thing. It could be a huge shift. So at the same time as the World Bank was yelling at China and saying, you've got to up your final consumption or your individual consumption, you've got to create more, uh, you've got to make much more in your home market. And to some degree, the Chinese have now done that. But the big thing then was productive consumption, not individual consumption. So Marx is, uh, is into that and kind of says, you know, you've got to think about uh, consumption in those two ways. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what was the New Deal partly about? One of the things they did was to set up these big public works projects and build uh, highways through Appalachia and things of that kind. It was very, you know, in retrospect, it was very important at the time, but it was relatively small compared to what the Chinese did. But yes, no, part of the New Deal was, was uh, to set up uh, these works projects and to employ labor and all the rest of it, yeah. And, and uh, oh, we see it uh, a little bit uh, in recent times. You know, Trump, when he came in, said, one of the things we're going to do, we're going to build infrastructures. Haven't done it, but, you know, uh, but, but, but there was sort of, there's often a discussion about, about uh, mopping up surplus capital and, and, and labor through uh, schemes of productive consumption. Uh, so, on page 718, what Marx starts to do is this. He then starts to, again, examine the positionality of the worker. The individual consumption of the worker, he says on 718, whether it occurs inside or outside the workshop, inside or outside the labor process, that means whether it's individual consumption or productive consumption, remains an aspect of the production and reproduction of capital just as the cleaning of machinery does, whether it is done during the labor process or where intervals in the process um, present. The maintenance and reproduction of the working class remains a necessary condition for the reproduction of capital. But the capitalist may safely leave this to the workers' drives for self-preservation and propagation. All the capitalist cares for is to reduce the workers' individual consumption to the necessary minimum. And then he talks about uh, a little bit about that. Now... Here, too, Marx is making a pretty big jump when he kind of says, okay, the capitalist just leaves uh, the reproduction of the working class uh, to the workers' drive for self-preservation and propagation. Now, in this diagram, there's this whole kind of area of social reproduction. Marx is sort of throwing a little indication in that direction saying okay the social reproduction over there we're going to leave that to the working class to sort out on their own we give them the minimum wage possible and let them get on with the whole kind of question of how they socially reproduce themselves and their kids and all the rest of it so again what marx is doing is sliding out of having to go into that kind of question in any detail but notice he is aware of the 
the issue. He's aware of the problem, uh, but he just doesn't want to deal with it and kind of slides over it so that the question of social reproduction uh, comes back in capital at another point, but at this particular point, uh, he's not prepared to deal with it. But the consequence of this on the top of 719 is this, that from the standpoint of society then, the working class, even when it stands outside the direct labor process, is just as much an appendage of capital as the lifeless instruments of labor are. That is, the, the, we've established earlier in the, the chapter on machinery how workers become an appendage of capital in the production process. But Marx is now kind of saying they are an appendage of capital in the reproduction process too. I'm not going to talk further about that, but that it is that shift of, of positionality that workers do not have uh, any choice. Uh, they are in an alienated uh, situation. So on 7.23, towards the end of this uh, simple reproduction chapter, Marx puts it this way. Capitalist production therefore reproduces in the course of its own process the separation between labor power and the conditions of labor. It thereby reproduces and perpetuates the conditions under which the worker is exploited. It incessantly forces him to sell his labor power in order to live, enables the capitalist to purchase labor power in order that he may enrich himself. It is no longer a mere accident that capitalist and worker confront each other in the market as buyer and seller. It is the alternating rhythm of the process itself which throws the worker back onto the market again and again as a seller of his labor power and continually transforms his own product into a means by which another man can purchase him. In reality, the worker belongs to capital before he has sold himself to the capitalist. His economic bondage is at once mediated through and concealed by the periodic renewal of the act by which he sells himself, his change of masters and the oscillations in the market price of labor. The capitalist process of production, and this is the general conclusion to the chapter, which is, again, very important, therefore seen as a total connected process, the process of reproduction, produces not only commodities, not only surplus value, but it also produces and reproduces the capital relation itself. On the one hand, the capitalist, on the other, the wage laborer. Now, most other forms of economic reasoning look at simple reproduction in terms of technical relations between supply and demand and, you know, all the rest of it. What Marx does in this chapter is to say what's being reproduced here is not a simple circulation process, but a, the social relation between capital and labor. What's being reproduced here is the working class and the capitalist class and the relation between them. And, and it's interesting, I think, that this, this chapter, that's the way this chapter works. It's not a technical expose of simple reproduction by input-output tables and all the rest of it, which, you know, or macroeconomic reasoning. It's a social understanding of that process as a reproduction of the class relation. And I think 
you know, Marx was kind of saying, that's what's most important about all of this, and we've got to get behind how that happens, how it is that workers produce instruments of their own domination. And so this chapter explains very much what that is about. Which leads us into chapter 24, uh, which is surplus, transformation of surplus value into capital. Now, it's interesting that in, chapter, in volume two, there is also a chapter on simple reproduction. Marx is very interested in simple reproduction, and I think there are two reasons for that. One is that through the analysis of simple reproduction, he can get certain conclusions, the one we've just seen. He can get that. And therefore, simple reproduction is easier to analyze some of the features than happens when you're looking at the dynamism of expanding accumulation and the dynamics of that. So that's one reason. The second reason I suspect, and I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I sometimes think of it this way, that at a certain point, we're going to have to look at a society which is going to be based on simple reproduction. Not necessarily the form he's talked about here. But if there is a problem which attaches to the perpetual accumulation of capital, then we're going to have to actually try to invent and come up with forms of activity which address the question of simple reproduction without accumulation. And by looking at this as an uh, intellectual exercise of what the world looks like under conditions of simple reproduction, you can see certain relations. And obviously you would socialize them in certain ways. So when I indicated the Meidner plan, for example, as a way of socializing the simple reproduction to the point where it then becomes under the control of the workers, rather than under the control of the capitalists, and that therefore the class relation is dissolved through the Meidner plan, and through the mode of reasoning that Marx lays out here about you know, changing the structure of property rights and, 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 and all the rest of it, then you can even see a mechanism whereby you would say, all right, if we want to become socialist, and we want to get rid of the class relation, then we get rid of that particular property relation which grounds the way in which capital reproduces itself through the domination of labor and why labor is forced to produce instruments of its own domination. And by drawing attention to the laborer, the laborer's attention to the fact that they are producing the instrument of their own domination, it's sort of encouraging people to revolt against it. I suspect that's the idea. But in chapter 24, then, we get into the question of accumulation. In fact, Marx is very clear that the idea of a capitalist mode of production, which is founded on simple reproduction, is a non-starter. The capitalist mode of production is about expansion. It is always about accumulation. 
And Marx explains that this way. Accumulation, he says, on the bottom of 726, requires the transformation of a portion of the surplus product into capital. But we cannot, except by a miracle, transform into capital anything but such articles as can be employed in the labour process, means of production, and such further articles as are suitable for the sustenance of the worker, i.e. means of subsistence. Consequently, a part of the annual surplus labour must have been applied to the production of additional means of production of subsistence over and above the quantity of these things required to replace the capital advanced. In a word, surplus value can be transformed into capital only because the surplus product, whose value it is, already comprises the material components of a new quantity of capital. Imagine you're in this cyclical, pro cyclical process. <clears throat> you go around <clears throat> and you've purchased labor power and means of production. And you've expanded the system, right? Because you produce the surplus value. A part of the surplus value is now going to come back and you've got more money capital. But if there's more money capital going to be circulated back into the system, there's got to be more means of production and more laborers. So this system has to depend. It's a bit like a, a sort of a, the bow wave of accumulation, Marx is saying, is a constant production of means of production beyond what is required today because they will be required tomorrow and of a labor force which is larger than it is today because uh, the expansion will, will require it. As he says, now in order that these components may actually function as capital, the capitalist class requires additional labor. The mechanism of capitalist production has already provided for this in advance by reproducing the working class as a class dependent on wages, a class whose ordinary wages suffice not only to maintain itself, but also to increase its numbers. All capital needs to do is to incorporate this additional labor power annually supplied by the working class in the shape of labor powers of all ages with the additional means of production comp comprised in the annual product and the transformation of surplus value into capital has been accomplished. Looked at concretely, accumulation can be resolved into the production of capital on a progressively increasing scale. The cycle of simple reproduction alters its form and, to use Sismondi's expression, changes into a spiral. This diagram looks like a cycle. Marx is saying it's not a cycle, it's going to be a spiral. It's going to be constantly expanding has to constantly expand because it's constantly producing surplus value. Surplus value means there's more value at a certain point than there was before. That more value, to some degree, is going to go back into the circulation process and produce even more value. So instead of it being a cycle, which is how we would think of it in, under conditions of simple reproduction, it becomes a spiral, a never-ending spiral, as Marx will argue. In every case, Marx says, of course, it's the working class that produces the surplus, which is going to produce more surplus. In every case, says Marx, the top of seven, 
29, the working class creates by surplus labor of one year, the capital destined to employ additional labor in the following year. And this is what's called creating capital out of capital. That's how the bourgeois economists called it. But Marx is kind of saying, no, it's workers actually creating the capital, which then employs their surplus. Hence, each individual transaction, he says, continues con to conform to the laws of commodity exchange with the capitalist, which are, as you remember, based on equality, that like for like is the law of exchange. With the capitalist always buying labor power and the worker always selling it at what we shall assume is its real value. It is quite evident from this that the laws of appropriation of private property laws based on the production and circulation of commodities, become changed into their direct opposite through their own internal and inexorable dialectic. This is the Lockean principle which gets turned into its exact opposite. You mix your labor with the land and you don't get the wealth. Somebody else gets it. The relation of exchange between capitalist and worker becomes a mere semblance belonging only to the process of circulation. It becomes a mere form which is alien to the content of the transaction itself and merely mystifies it. The constant sale and purchase of labor powers, as top of 7.30, is the form. The content is the constant appropriation by the capitalist without equivalent of a portion of the labor of others which has already been objectified and his repeated exchange of this labor for a greater quantity of the living labor of others. Originally, this is coming back to the Lockean principle, the rights of property seemed to us to be grounded in a man's own labor. Some such assumption was at least necessary, since only commodity owners with equal rights confronted each other, and the sole means of appropriating the commodities of others was the alienation of a man's own commodities, commodities which, however, could only be produced by labor. Now, however, property turns out to be the right on the part of the capitalist to appropriate the unpaid labor of others or its product, and the impossibility on the part of the worker of appropriating his own product. The separation of property from labor thus becomes the necessary consequence of a law that apparently originated in their identity. Locke established the identity. Marx is talking about the inversion of that. What then follows is a sort of reprise of the whole kind of theory of surplus value. So if you've forgotten what it is, then we'll have to deal, you'll have to, you could take a read of that. Um, to be sure, he says at the bottom of 732, the matter looks quite different. This is after the sort of review of the uh, individual form of, of surplus value theory. The matter looks quite different if we consider capitalist production in the uninterrupted flow of its renewal. This is what I'm trying to get out of this diagram. Think about the uninterrupted flow of its renewal. And if, in place of the individual capitalist and the individual worker, we view them in their totality as the capitalist class and the working class confronting each other. And this then leads, uh, again, to the whole kind of question of how the unpaid labor of the workers 
is appropriated by capital and turned into uh, the vehicle for its own reproduction. Section two. Okay. Political economists' erroneous conception of reproduction on an increasing scale. Uh, how did accumulation occur? Well, there's a big argument about hoarding and the significance of hoarding and what the and, and, and the incentive to hoard. Marx kind of is dismissive of that. Uh, there's also a whole kind of uh, uh, discussion of, of how this reproduction system works in, in, in the volume two context very briefly. Uh, but by and large, he's arguing that the bourgeois way of understanding this expansion is, is, is simply uh, erroneous and, and, and uh, imperfect. Uh, so, what does this then lead into? This is laid out in the section three when he's talked about the division of surplus value into capital and revenue, and the curious thing, the abstinence theory. Uh, the, the, the capitalist class or their ideologues and thinkers were desperate, I think, to square what they were doing with some kind of notion of uh, virtue and bourgeois virtue. And they like to cover over what they were doing by kind of saying, well, actually, we're, we're virtuous people. Uh, particularly, we are refraining, for example, from consumption and consumerism because we're taking our capital and we're reinvesting it. And their model for that was, of course, the abstemious Quaker family and Quaker industry had something to do with this. And you can get mixed up with Weber and religion and origins of capitalism and so on. But the theory of abstinence was, was terribly important because it basically said, you know, this idea that we capitalists are just greedy pigs and we're taking whatever we can from the worker and we're robbers and all this kind of stuff is all wrong. We're actually virtuous people engaging in abstinence. We're abstaining. Uh, I mean, you know, you live in Manhattan. You see all the abstinence of the capitalist class, so you know what, perfectly well what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, so we look then at what happens at this, here we do get into a little bit into the distribution question. Uh, we look at what, what happens with the capitalist when they receive uh, the surplus value. And Marx points out that the one part of the surplus value is consumed by the capitalist as revenue. That is, they use it for their own consumption. So you get this line going round of bourgeois consumption. Uh, the other part is employed as capital, it is accumulated, which comes back through, if you like, one part goes around the top of this circle and one the other part around the bottom of the, uh, coming back in the form of money capital. And the big question is, what's the relationship between circulation of revenues and the circulation of reinvestment capital? Uh, with a given mass of surplus value, then the larger the one part, the smaller the other. Other things being equal, the ratio of these parts determines the magnitude of the accumulation. 
but it is the owner of the surplus value, the capitalist, who makes this division. It is an act of his will. That part of the tribute exacted by him which he accumulates is said to be saved by him because he does not consume it, i.e. because he performs his function as a capitalist and enriches himself. And then comes Marx's take on this. Except as capital personified, the capitalist has no historical value and no right to that historical existence, which, to use Lichnowsky's amusing expression, ain't got no date. It is only to this extent that the necessity of the capitalist's own transitory existence is implied in the transitory necessity of the capitalist mode of production. But insofar as he is capital personified, his motivating force is not the acquisition and enjoyment of use values, but the acquisition and augmentation of exchange values. He is fanatically intent on the valorization of value. Consequently, he ruthlessly forces the human race to produce for production's sake. In this way, he spurs on the development of society's productive forces and the creation of those material conditions of production which alone can form the real basis of a higher form of society, a society in which the full and free development of every individual forms the ruling principle. This is interesting. I mean, Marx is kind of saying, you've got the capital personified. They're fetishistically engaging on this crazy pursuit of creating more and more value and forcing everybody else to engage in this pursuit of more and more value. But in so doing, this actually creates the material conditions of production which alone can form the real basis of a higher form of society. A society in which the full and free development of every individual forms the ruling principle. Notice that. Society in which the full and free development of every individual forms the ruling principle. This is where Marx starts to say things like, well, you, you know, the great thing that the capitalists did was to produce the productivity and the wealth which would allow socialism to flourish. That you can't get to socialism without, without probably going through this. Only as a personification of capital is the capitalist respectable. As such, he shares with the miser an absolute drive towards self-enrichment. But what appears in the miser as the mania of an individual is in the capitalist the effect of a social mechanism in which he is merely a cog. Moreover, the development of capitalist production makes it necessary constantly to increase the amount of capital laid out in a given industrial undertaking. And competition subordinates every individual capitalist to the imminent laws of capitalist production as external and coercive laws. It compels him to keep extending his capital so as to preserve it, and he can only extend it by means of progressive accumulation. That is, the capitalist has no choice. You start to feel real sorry for the capitalist right now. He's a cog in the wheel. Uh, and... This phrasing is, I think, very, very, very important. And it's the, it's the coercive laws of competition. External and coercive laws which compel him to keep extending his capital so as to preserve it. Can he only extend it by means of progressive accumulation? This is a... The capitalist is, a, is as alienated as anybody else in this system. They're driven by abstractions. 
which they don't control. They're driven by a market process, the coercive laws of competition, which they don't and cannot control. And they're actually forced to adopt the persona that Marx is talking about here and to become capital personified. Now, who as a, as a, as a decent human individual would, would sit down and say, I'd love to be capital personified? But at a certain point, people will kind of start to justify what they're doing and say that, you know, they're contributing to humanity and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is what all those people like, you know, folk in the IMF and all the rest of it do. They say, kind of, we're, we're contributing to the benevolence of humanity by doing all we do. Uh, and, you know, and then comes this thing where Marx kind of says, insofar, therefore, as his actions are a mere function of capital, endowed as capital is in his person with consciousness and a will, that is, consciousness and a will is forced upon them by capital. His own private consumption counts as a robbery committed against the accumulation of his capital. Accumulation, goes on to say, is co the conquest of the world of social wealth. It is an extension of the air of exploited human material at the same time the extension of the direct and indirect sway of the capitalist. Then Marx comes into the slightly ironic, humorous part. Original sin is at work everywhere. With the development of the capitalist mode of production, with the growth of accumulation of wealth, the capitalist ceases to be merely the incarnation of capital. He begins to feel human warmth towards his own atom. And his education gradually enables him to smile at his former enthusiasm for asceticism as an old-fashioned miser's prejudice. While the capitalist of the classical type brands individual consumption as a sin against his function, as abstinence from accumulating, the modernized capitalist is capable of viewing accumulation as renunciation of pleasure. Two souls, alas, do not dwell within his breast. Oh, sorry, two souls, alas, do dwell within his breast. One is ever parting from the other. That's Faust. This is the Faustian dilemma of the capitalist. So Marx is putting the capitalist firmly in that uh, dilemma. And then Marx goes through a kind of, a, you know, what happened... Uh, uh, to in, in Manchester in the first phase. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of asceticism and then, you know, things, but by the time you get to the final phase, they're consuming up the wazoo. Um, but the total result of this is, as he says on 742 in a very famous passage, accumulate, accumulate. That is Moses and the prophets. Industry furnishes the material which saving accumulates. Therefore, save, save i.e. reconvert the greatest possible portion of surplus value or surplus product into capital. Accumulation for the sake of accumulation. Production for the sake of production. This was the formula in which classical economics expressed the historical mission of the bourgeoisie in the period of its domination. Not for one instant did it deceive itself over the nature of wealth's birth pangs. But what use is it to lament a historical necessity? If, in the eyes of classical economics, the proletarian is merely a machine for the production of surplus value, the capitalist, too, is merely a machine for the transformation of the surplus value into surplus capital. Classical economics takes the historical function of the capitalist in grim earnest. 
in order to conjure away the awful conflict between the desire for enjoyment and the drive for self-enrichment. This is the you know, Faustian dilemma in which the capitalist class uh, is caught. And Marx talks about this uh, at some kind of length, uh, the abstaining capitalist uh, and how it is set up. In section four, Marx does something interesting, which is he says there's various ways in which, uh, it, you know, we think that the only way in which accumulation can occur is through reinvestment. That's what we've defined. But actually, there are various other ways in which uh, accumulation can be promoted other than by uh, the direct reinvestment. Uh, one of them is through the forcible reduction of the wage of labor beneath its value, which uh, means that uh, you don't have to invest to expand the system. You expand surplus value uh, that way. Um, and indeed, there's a long history of attempt to suppress wages. Wage repression has been everywhere. Uh, and even creating uh, John Stuart Mill's kind of comment uh, uh, that uh, uh, wages, uh, if labor could be had without purchase, wages might be dispensed with. But then Marx kind of says, but if the workers could live on air, it would not be possible to buy them at any price. This zero cost of labor is therefore a limit in a mathematical sense, always beyond reach, although we can always approximate more and more nearly to it. The constant tendency of capital is to force the cost of labor back towards this absolute zero. So there is constant pressure within a capitalist system to impose austerity. Uh, and of course, we don't, we, we don't understand what that's all about, do we? we it doesn't happen in our society. We're civilized. People are not going to impose austerity on the working class. Uh, um, then there's certain certain things. For instance, uh, something provided by nature free of charge, and that's in the case of metals, minerals, coal, stone, etc., uh, so that you can get free constant capital. Uh, you can also get uh, uh, some free... Uh, capital uh, or, or labor uh, by conversion of, uh, say, uh, uh, attendance on the wealthy estates uh, so that they join the working class. Uh, and it's through, as he says on 752, the direct action of man on nature, uh, that this can become an immediate source of greater accumulation without the intervention of any new capital. Uh, and then he has a, a fairly lengthy understanding of an important factor in the accumulation of capital is the degree of productivity of social labor, uh, which is really about uh, how effective uh, the labor force is uh, and how well trained it is. And uh, improvements in that can actually uh, increase uh, uh, the, the accumulation of capital without uh, reinvestment. Um, then there is the savings of, uh, of waste, as he talks about on 754, uh, that how capital is taught to throw back the waste from the process of production and consumption into the cycle of the process of reproduction. And thus, without any previous outlay of capital, it creates fresh materials for it. 
then, of course, there's an increased exploitation of natural wealth resulting from the simple act of increasing the pressure under which labor power has to operate. Science and technology give capital a power of expansion, which is, which is independent of, uh, uh, of reinvestment. They react at the same time on that part of the original capital, which has entered the stage of its renewal. Uh, and uh, Marx then goes on to say, the natural power of labor appears as a power incorporated into capital for the latter's own self-preservation. Uh, all the powers of labor project themselves as powers of capital, just as all the value forms of the commodity do as forms of money. Uh, so there are the various ways then in which the accumulation process can be jacked up and various possibilities uh, so that you don't rely solely on uh, the reinvestment function, even though uh, looking at it, you would sort of say it's really the reinvestment function that's probably the most important. Uh, uh, aspect of this. Uh, 758, Marx pulls all this together uh, in, in the so-called labor fund. And he says, it has been shown in the course of this inquiry that capital is not a fixed magnitude, but a part of social wealth which is elastic and constantly fluctuates with the division of surplus value into revenue and additional capital. Now, this idea that capital is very flexible elastic and constantly fluctuates. Uh, again, is one of the powers of capital. And it's one of the powers of the capital that has, the Marx really does appreciate, but also fears it in a way, particularly when it comes to waging political struggles, because capital is so elastic, so flexible, so dynamic, that if it gets a problem, it goes around it and finds another way around it. And the flexibility is such that to mean that, you know, to be an anti-capitalist has to be putting yourself in a position where you can counter the flexibility and be as flexible as as capital. And if I dare say it, it's often been my observation that the left is not very flexible. And I will now be accused of flexible leftism. <laughs> but actually, that's what you need. Because without the flexibility, you, you just can't deal with the, the rapid ad adaptability of capital. And then goes on and says, it's been seen further that even with a given magnitude of functioning capital, the labor power, science and land, which means economically speaking, all the objects of labor furnished by nature without human intervention, incorporated in it form elastic powers of capital, allowing it within certain limits a field of action independent of its own magnitude. In this inquiry, we have ignored all relations arising from the process of circulation, right? Okay, he said that before. All of this other stuff that's going on in the circulation process is kind of being cast to one side. And since we presuppose the limits set by capitalist production, we presuppose the social process of production in a form developed by purely spontaneous growth. We disregarded any more rational combination which could be affected directly and in a planned way, with the means of production and labor power present available. Classical political economy has always liked to conceive social capital as a fixed magnitude of a fixed degree of efficiency. And, and here Marx is going to criticize you know, classical political economy for its inability to understand the flexibility of the system it was dealing with. Uh, but this flexibility was first established as a dogma 
by the arch-Philistine Jeremy Bentham, who is described as that soberly pedantic and heavy-footed oracle of the common sense of the 19th century bourgeoisie, Bentham is among philosophers what Martin Tupper is among poets. Uh, was a, Tupper was apparently a crass poet. I've never read him, but anyway. Both could only have been manufactured in England. Which the, yeah, so, <laughs> but but the, the, the attempt to create a fixed science which is going to define and capture what's happening in a highly flexible, dynamic system uh, is, in a sense, a, 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 a fool's uh, errand. So here, I think we've we've got to the, the end of, uh, of, of this 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 chapter. Uh, except there's one other thing that uh, I. I I didn't mention, which I think is important to the assumptions which are prevailing here, which is back on 727, uh, um, where, where there's a footnote where Marx says, here we take no account of the export trade by means of which a nation can change articles of luxury either into means of production or means of subsistence and vice versa. An interesting discussion as to when something that's an article of luxury becomes a necessity or when it becomes a form of constant capital. Uh, if you convert a, a, a sort of aristocratic residence uh, into a sweatshop, uh, you've actually you know, taken something that exists and changed its function and it's now defined as fixed capital when it wasn't fixed capital before. So there's all this kind of flexibility of definition. But in order to examine the object of our investigation in its integrity, free from all disturbing subsidiary circumstances, we must treat the whole world of trade as one nation and assume that capitalist production is established everywhere and has taken possession of every branch of industry. Uh, this is Marx making an assumption that there's a closed system. Um, so he's not only made all those assumptions about what he's going to do in Volume 2 and Volume 3 and what he's leaving out in Volume 1, he's also saying, I'm assuming a closed system. So there's no trade with pre-capitalist social formations or anything of that kind going on. So the theory that he's dealing with is a fairly restricted kind of theory. And we've seen he's at various points he's breached that theory, if you remember, when he kind of said, you know, the problem with technological dynamism is you need a market in front of you and, and a source of raw materials behind you. Uh, where did that happen? Well, it happened with the India because you destroyed the uh, Indian capacity uh, to produce their own textiles and therefore you've got the big textile market for the cotton manufacturers of Lancashire, but then you needed something from India. And what did you get? You get hemp and jute and, and cotton and all that kind of thing from India. So there is a, there are moments where Marx does get out of the closed uh, uh, closed system kind of model, but by and large, his thinking is as if there is one nation and capital is established everywhere and capital is the only way in which uh, reproduction can occur. If you live in a hybrid society where there are pre-capitalist or post-capitalist modes of production going on and only part of the society is organized on capitalist basis, then of course, again, you get something very, uh, very different. Okay, so 
that's chapters 23 and 24, and that's going to take us into chapter 25. Not next week, because next week is uh, a CUNY uh, holiday vacation, right? So we meet in two weeks' time, which gives you a lot of time to enjoy chapter 25, The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation, which is effectively divided into two parts. One is a theoretical argument, uh, the first four sections. Uh, then the fifth is the illustrations of the general law of capitalist accumulation, which is a very, very lengthy uh, thing, which is about the conditions of life and labor of uh, the Industrial Reserve Army. Uh, with a great deal of historical uh, detail, again, relying upon uh, uh, press reports and also the factory inspectors. But this is, a, this is where, uh, particularly the first four sections, this is where the theoretical apparatus of Volume 1 is brought together uh, to build a very, I think, a very uh, sophisticated model of the accumulation of capital and how it works, uh, how the spiral uh, operates, and what the conditions are which are required for that spiral. Now, this spiral form is uh, stuck, if you like, with the assumptions uh, which we started out with. So when Marx makes predictions in here that it's going to look like this or look like that, remember these are always contingent predictions, they're contingent on the assumptions which are built into uh, the form of the model that he's going to build. Uh, people get annoyed at me when I say it's a model of accumulation. Well, it is. It is, it is a model. And, you know, I, mean, I know it sounds kind of very um, uh, positivist and all the rest of it, but that's, in fact, uh, what, what Marx is doing here, is to build uh, an analysis of the laws of motion of capital under the coercive laws of competition. And uh, again, I would want to emphasize that what we're looking at here, one of the mechanisms of disciplinary apparatuses, if you like, which is going on, is the coercive laws of competition. And the coercive laws of competition, are the, they are, if you like, uh, the, the enforcer of the law of value. So you have a law of value which is being enforced through the coercive laws of competition. And this is, I think, something very important to keep in mind when uh, you read the next chapter, because what you're going to look at is how the law of value is producing laws of motion. And we're going to look at the laws of motion of capital accumulation in the next chapter, based on all of the arguments that have gone on about absolute and relative technological dynamism and, and, and all the rest of it. It's a brilliant chapter in, in, in many ways, but uh, please remember uh, the assumptions when, when you're reading it. So I'm going to stop here and ask if you have any kind of comments or questions you want to add up, get into on these uh, two two chapters on and, and anything that's gone before. Yeah. Um, hello. I have a question about a term that was used in the readings for today, which was um, that at some point the capitalist will pay, will, will divide the, the, the wage labor into smaller wages and then something called, I think, parochial sustenance. And I didn't understand 
what the, what that what was meant by parochial sustenance. Oh, parochial sustenance is, I think, a re reference to the poor laws at the time. Each parish uh, was supposed to take care of uh, impoverished population, uh, and uh, the, the question of what kind of food they were fed. <laughs> Uh, in, the, in the workhouses and things of that kind and what kind of disciplinary apparatus is around. So when he talks about parochial sustenance, it's, uh, it's a reference, I think, to the fact that uh, the poor laws usually led to the administration of the lowest possible common denominator of food supply that could barely uh, keep people physically alive, let alone... So I think that's what's being referred to. I mean, not... I mean, the poor laws were administered at the parish level, and so there was a lot of variation. You know, there were probably some parishes that were reasonable, but but uh, and, and the general thesis grew up in this time, which we still get today. Which is, if you made uh, if you made uh, the the level of sustenance uh, too attractive, then people would not bother go to work; they would just live off the sustenance, which is one of the, which is the right wing objection right now to you know food stamps and all this kind of thing that uh, in fact in a very funny way the the right wing maintains that the main cause of unemployment in the society is that the welfare state is too generous uh, because people would rather live off unemployment than they would actually go and into the wage labor force and do a hard days good days work which would discipline them and make righteous people of them instead of lazy mongrels living off you know I mean, yeah. So parochial, so parochial uh, refers refers to that that system. Thanks again, David. The I, I'm thinking about this um, division of surplus value between revenue and capital. And Marx seems to spend a lot of time talking about what are the other factors that explain the rate of accumulation, but doesn't, at least in this bit, sort of explain that. And that seems to me to be critical. And it seems on the surface to like, actually have a big role for demand in it. Like you said, Marx really dismisses the role of demand outside of oscillations. But yeah. so I'm wondering, is, uh, is there more to come? Should I sit on the edge of my seat for a bit longer? Or what, what determines the split? Between, between uh, revenue, circulation of revenue One, and circulation yes. of capital? When the capitalist has the surplus value, then what, how much of it goes into this and goes into that. Uh, part of that is going to be dictated by the coercive laws of competition. That if I reinvest a lot, I'm going to start to push for big, you know, I'm going to expand, going to look for more market share. I'm probably going to have a new technology and I'm probably going to drive you out of business. So if the capitalist sits there and says, well, I'll put 20% into reinvestment and, you know, uh, but then somebody comes along and says, well, oh, I'm going to put 70% uh, into reinvestment. And coercive laws of competition 
uh, are at work there, which uh, plays a very important role, I think, in the way Marx is setting it up. Uh, and uh, that, of course, then affects uh, the nature of the demand, because if you put it back into through reinvestment, it's productive consumption that's going to be the demand. If you put it the other way around, it's going to be bourgeois uh, consumption. And but again, you're right, however, because to 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 say, well, Marx isn't looking at the demand side. Well, he's not. No, because he's assuming there's no problem. I mean, this whole this whole thing about I assume all commodities exchange at their value. Yeah, it permeates the whole the whole volume, and that's a big assumption. Uh, and uh, so there's nothing much in here about the creation of new uh, you know wants, needs, and desires. We saw a little bit of that in chapter three. Kind of said that's necessary, but I'm not going to deal with it. So this assumption that everything exchanges at its value, with in the next chapter the exception of, of labor may exchange below its value, as he starts to talk about here, uh, the assumption that there's no problem in the field of demand is, 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 is problematic from the standpoint of volume one of capital, but it, it, it's dealt with in, in, you know, actually rather incomplete ways, but is, is opened up anyway for more detailed consideration in volume two of capital. Uh, the last part of which is a, is very much uh, similar to a sort of Keynesian exploration of demand supply dynamics. Uh, so you'll get you'll get some of that in in the volume in, in the volume two. So you ain't going to get it in here this this time around. But it, it is an interesting kind of question of uh, of the history of uh, reinvestment of how you know to what degree. Uh, one looks at uh, some of some of the, the whole. And this has been sort of well documented in in, in Britain. Uh, how how the Quaker business person and the Quaker household played a very important role in industrialization because the, the big question of where does the original capital come from? Well, if people are saving and there's abstinence then you will have some surplus capital to begin to put in when you put it in you are not going to spend it on consumption in fact uh, the stories that come out of kind of the lifestyle of uh, quaker industrialists who often had a very democratic relationship with their workforce so their workforce may in some instances lived in or lived so close by and they all would eat from the same table so they were all kind of living in some cases on parochial food, parochial sustenance food levels, in order to have enough capital to expand the, 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 the business. And so, yes, there have been phases of, of working like that, and then there have been phases where merchant capitalists have basically robbed people. I mean, the role of merchant capital in the 17th and 18th century was basically robbery and, 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 and mayhem. Uh, so that that is another part of uh, uh, the, the the story. So how how the reinvestment function works and what the incentives are to reinvestment as opposed to personal consumption. But here too, I think you would look at something which is back in the earlier part in that chapter where Marx talked about the rate and mass of surplus value. 
I mean, there gets a certain mass of surplus value where people can have a very luxurious uh, lifestyle at the same time as they're putting a large quantity of surplus value back into production. So you can't say that because somebody has a tremendously uh, luxurious lifestyle that they're not reinvesting. <laughs> it depends on what mass of capital they control. I mean, if they only control you know, $10,000 or something like that, then obviously. But if, if they're in control of a uh, uh, billion dollars, then you, know, you could have 80% uh, uh, reinvestment and 20% uh, uh, personal consumption, but that 20% personal cons consumption would be a huge amount so that you could have, uh, you know, you could live like Bloomberg or, uh, you know, with four or five houses around and, and, and a personal helicopter and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what, what, what goes on in that sphere is, again, I think a, a, a question of historical analysis, but Marx has raised it and said, look, this, this question, but it is going to be regulated by the coercive laws of competition. I think it's interesting to go back in, in, throughout this whole capital as to how the coercive laws of competition are working and, and what their role is. And Marx never sort of gets to it in, in, much, in, in, in enough detail. Any other? I was just wondering um, about what I read about a lot uh, today, that corporations are sitting on a lot of cash. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, again, from the standpoint of uh, the, the, the totality of this system I'm looking at, if you get to the point of having money in your pocket, and you're looking at an investment where the potential rate of return is very low or the risks are very high, then you sit on the money. The money. And there's a lot of evidence that, uh, uh, for instance, quantitative easing has created uh, a lot of cash uh, which is not being reinvested, partly because where's the rate of return? Uh, and uh, the second thing is that it's not only being, re if it is reinvested, it's being used to buy back their own stock. So one of the way in which, uh, for instance, uh, the CEOs get very rich is by the price of uh, the stock going up. And one of the ways you can force the price up is the company can take some of its cash, go into the market and buy back its own stock which then means there's a big demand for the stock and the stock price goes up and the CEOs can cash in. So actually the evidence right now is a lot of the surplus money which is available, for re could be available to reinvestment, is not going into reinvestment, but is going to stock buybacks and, and in some cases just being hoarded as, as cash uh, um, because uh, investment opportunities are not so are, are considered too 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 risky right now, we're going to wait and see what happens. There's too much uncertainty in the market, 
Um, now, of course, uh, in some instances, the cash is being used uh, to pay dividends, raise dividends, which also means the stock goes up, which means that the owners, i.e. the stockholders, are going to become more affluent and then they have an interesting choice whether they want to spend it on consumerism or whether they want to spend it uh, on uh, investing again in stock somewhere else. By and large, uh, it seems like uh, uh, the system right now, given the flows, is uh, a bit uh, gummed up, if you want to call it that, in terms of uh, not, it's not free-flowing, uh, as free-flowing as it might be. But part of that also may be a function of the fact that the mass of capital out there looking for things to do is now so much greater than it was before. Uh, I was looking at some data on uh, uh, China and uh, the, the mass of capital which is available in China right now is about three times what it was, say, in 1995. Because the economy has grew very significantly and now a very much smaller growth rate is producing a, a, a much larger mass of capital looking for things to do. So the Chinese have, a, if you like, a surplus capital disposal problem. Uh, but it's not only the Chinese, everybody's got that kind of problem right now, surplus capital disposal problem. There's not a shortage of capital in the world, there's a, there's a surplus of it and nobody knows exactly what to do with it and where to put it and in what ways it can earn uh, an adequate rate of return. Uh, though there have been certain shifts. One of the shifts, of course, has been uh, into uh, land grabbing, uh, buying up uh, resources, buying up land on the thesis that land is not going to, uh, in the long term, is going to maintain its, uh, it's going to maintain its value. Uh, and uh, perhaps even increase its value, given you know, agricultural shortages and things of that kind. So, you know, what the investment prospects are depends. Okay, so maybe we should stop around here because uh, I have to get out of here um, and. So next week, then, chapter 25, okay? Not next week, two weeks' time, uh, chapter 25.